Good morning. It is good to see you here. It is so good to see you here. Back when I was growing up, I, I began to get this uh, sense, and I don't think I even had words for it when I was first beginning to, to be compelled by the principle of it, but the sense that I would now uh, put around this phrase, all is well that ends well. All is well that ends well. Probably the, the childhood stories I heard, there was always some kind of crisis, and, but at the very last page, it would say they lived happily ever after. And so instinctively, I thought, well, there's some tough times, but if the last page, if it's happily ever after, all's well that, that ends well. I played baseball some. I played uh, during uh, my little league years. I, I began to understand there were some games that could go very, very bad. Uh, there were a number of those, but there were at least one or two of those that went very badly that by the last inning, it all turned around. And, and our team played above and beyond ourselves, and, and we would win the game. And, and I would go home with this sense of all's well that ends well. First five innings of a six-inning game didn't matter. In fact, it made it even sweeter when the sixth inning actually turned out as it did. Think If you're a sports fan, think of the, of the Patriots and the Falcons. If you're a Patriots fan, think of this. If you're, if you're a Falcons fan, just kind of put your fingers in yours right now. But, but 25 points down, horrible first half. But... but because it ended well with this overtime win, it's, it's the game they'll talk about till they die. All's well that ends well. When I was in high school, my mother had um, an illness that at one point looked like it could be cancer. High, high stress, bad, bad time. But it turned out not to be cancer. And there was this sense in that season that all's well that ends well. Uh, those of you that uh, have children, and I, I do not know the experience of it, but I've, I've watched and I've observed and I've heard, but, but there's this pregnancy that unfolds, and there can be some very trying times, and it can be very difficult at times, and then there's a, a point of delivery, and maybe there's hours of labor or days of labor or weeks of labor. I've heard stories about how that can go. Or maybe there's a, a surgery and a C-section, but all of that can be so difficult. But if you get to hold that precious baby in your arms, all's well that ends well. So we've been in this book of Habakkuk for a couple of weeks, and I'll briefly summarize about it. It's, it's being written about the six, uh, 600 B.C. It's being written to the Jewish people that live in the kingdom of Judah. So if you know where Jerusalem is, you know the geography of where this was being written. And the Jewish people and the leadership of the Jewish people was summarized by the terms evil and misery. And I don't know that those terms are enough, and so in some of it, this is fleshed out for us in the book of um, Jeremiah as well as the book of Habakkuk. But, but the leaders of the country were murdering innocent people. The people were being told and encouraged and, um, and enabled to worship God by temple prostitution. They said, this is how you honor God. In fact, the apex of their evil and misery was they were worshiping God by sacrificing their sons and daughters to, to God, to false gods. It was that, that bad. And so the book unfolds, and Habakkuk is crying out to God, saying, I know you, God, I know your character. How is it you haven't removed this evil leadership? How is it you haven't made our nation right again? And the very first learning that we've had about trying times is this, is to lift up honest, unfiltered, unceasing prayer. In the trying times that you may be facing now or that will come to you, lift up honest, unfiltered, unceasing prayer. And then God answers Habakkuk, and he says, I, I've heard your prayer. I'm going to remove that evil Jewish leadership, which sounds really good until the rest of the sentence unfolds. And God says, you know, the, the cruel, violent Babylonians, I'm going to raise them up to power. I'm going to have them come in and wipe out the evil leadership of, of the Jewish people. 
And Habakkuk is saying, no, that, that's not what I was looking for. It seems you've made it worse, God. I don't understand this, that you would do this. I thought you were going to make it better, and, and now you've acted, but it seemed like it's gotten worse. And, and there's this second learning that we had out of that. We, we said that you can hold one and only one expectation of God, is that he will prove himself to be good. In whatever way he acts in your trying times, he will prove himself to be good. Because we can look at what happened in that time, we can understand that the Jewish people were like a tree, and Isaiah would actually prophesy this about them. They were like a tree that was so badly diseased, you couldn't cut off branches or even limbs or even you couldn't leave the trunk. You had to cut it down to a stump to get rid of the disease and give it a chance to come back again. And that's what God had to do. And so, so even in bringing the Babylonians and bringing this uh, horrific exile that occurred, uh, God was proving himself to be good. And, and you and your trying times and me and whatever trying times will come to me, we can hold one expectation that whatever God does, he will prove himself to be good in doing that. So Habakkuk, though, out of that, he has, he has this question of God that's at the very end of chapter 1, and he says, okay, I, I've heard what sounds like really bad news, but tell me, will they get away with this forever? Will evil always triumph and then it spills into chapter 2, and he says, I'm not going to try to think this out on my own logic. This is way above my thinking pay grade. I'm going to wait at the watchtower and see if God answers me and see what God says. Which takes us to Habakkuk 2, verse 2. It says, Then the Lord said to me, Write my answer plainly on tablets, so that a runner can carry the correct message to others. This vision is for a future time. It describes the end, and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently, for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. Write my answer plainly on tablets, or quite literally from the Hebrew, it says, write my answer plainly on the tablets. I don't know if that causes you to think about some other tablets or not, but if you were to read Isaiah, who is a better-known prophet, Isaiah was told to write on a scroll and on a tablet, not the tablets, and Jeremiah, who was a better-known prophet, was told to write in a book. But Habakkuk is told to write on the tablets. And if you were a Jewish person, you would read that, and you would think, oh, my goodness, this is, this is taking me back to Moses on Mount Sinai. This is taking me back to Ten Commandment days. This is taking me back to when the law was written. This is saying that what's about to be said must be a profound, deep, deep importance. In fact, as now we can look back, this... Jewish tradition would rise up in the decades and the centuries that would follow. And, and the tradition was that of the 613 laws of Moses written in the first five books of the Bible, the tradition said that Habakkuk condensed them all down into one. He took all 613 and poured them into this one law, which we'll see in just a few moments now. It was that significant to them. So, so the message that we should get is this is a, a, a crucial, important message that's going to be conveyed. And it says then that, uh, that so that a runner can carry the correct message to others. And the intent was for this to be passed on and taught again and again through the centuries. And so in one sense, I'm, I'm just one more runner. It's 2017, and I'm one of this long, long line of runners, and there'll be many that would follow me as well to teach what the content is of this. And then clearly, this is about the end times, isn't it? Habakkuk didn't ask about the end times. He said, well, just tell me how long these Babylonians are going to have full run. How long will they prevail? And God says, I'm not going to answer the immediate question for you. I'm going to do something actually 
that will prove to be of much more value. I'm going to tell you how it ends. When I think about the baseball games I played when I was in Little League, on the rare occasion that we came through in the sixth inning and all, and I'd go home joyous, there, there was this little nagging thought that there would be more games. And as the games and years unfolded, the, I began to think what really matters is, is how the career ends. Remember all's well that ends well? And, and by the way, and a few of you know the story, but my baseball career ended so badly it would make me forget every good game I had for years. I couldn't even think about the sport it ended so badly. It wasn't a case of all that, <laughs> all is wealth, all ends. Well, it ended so badly. There was going to be more baseball games. Don't, don't just tell me how this one ends. Tell me how it really ends. My mother's scare with potential cancer, it ended really well in the moment. But even at 16, intuitively, I know there would be another medical crisis. And maybe in another and another God was saying to Habakkuk, I I could tell you about the Babylonians. In fact, Jeremiah would tell about the, through God's prophecy about the Babylonians. But God would say to Habakkuk, I'm going to do much better than that. I'm going to tell you about the last chapter. You're in a hard time now. You're in a trying time now. And there'll probably be others. And I could tell you about all those, but I'm going to do one better than that. I'm going to tell you how it all ends. I'm going to tell you about the last chapter. And so God goes on. Look at the proud, they trust in themselves, and their lives are crooked, but the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. God's describing there are two kinds of people. He, the first kind, he says, look at the proud, they trust in themselves, which is the biblical definition of pride, is to trust in oneself. The implication of that is that that they would call the shots in their life. They would make the final decision about their life. They might very well listen to God's suggestions. They might listen to his, uh, his wisdom. They might even listen to his commands. They would consider them. And they might even do a lot of them, but they would make the final decision. They, they trusted in themselves. God says, uh, look at the proud. They trust in themselves and their lives are crooked. Their lives are bent. Their lives aren't straight as they should be. But the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. He says, there's another kind of people. There are only two, but there's this other kind. The righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. Or another word for faithfulness is their trust in God. The prideful trust in themselves. The righteous trust in God instead. In fact, there's this definition of, of faith or of trust. The biblical definition is, is giving God leadership of your life. It's what Habakkuk had done. He's saying the righteous ones are those who have who've given leadership of their life to me. Their faithfulness is in me. And he says here that they will live. It's just one sentence, but it's this massive message of good news. God's saying, I'm going to tell you how it all ends. I'm going to tell you about the last chapter. And he's saying, if you happen to be one of those who puts their trust in me, who's given leadership to me, here's this good news. You're going to live it is stunning good news. It, it, it ends well. All's well that ends well. You don't, don't pass that by. You're going to live when it all comes down to in the end. Because you've trusted me, then I will count you as righteous and you're going to live. And then he spends the rest of the chapter talking about those that are prideful and have trusted in themselves. Because that's Habakkuk's question. Are, are these evil ones, will they prevail? God could have gone on and on about the ones that trust him and the ones that are righteous and how they'll live, but he, then now he goes to answer this long-term question about the evil ones. 
And, and so it begins to spill out in verse 5. It says, wealth is treacherous. And by the way, in, in some of the early manuscripts, some places it says wealth, some places it says wine is treacherous. But just an example of where people can go so far awry, where the pr- proudful can go awry. Wealth is treacherous. And the arrogant are never at rest. They open their mouths as wide as the grave. And like death, they're never satisfied. In their greed, they have gathered up many nations and swallowed many peoples. Habakkuk is writing this or pounding this into the tablets. And he's thinking, sounds just like the Babylonians. Their appetite for evil and conquest knows no end. It is never satisfied. It knows no end. They've swallowed up many peoples. Verse 6, but... Soon their captives will taunt them, and they'll mock them, saying, What sorrow awaits you? And there's this pattern that has begun right here where God begins to say to Habakkuk, uh, This is what the evil do, but it's going to turn on them. In fact, in this chapter, there, there are eight times you read the word but, at least in the New Living Translation. They may vary on translations, but, but there are eight times God is saying, it, it appears that the evil are prospering. In fact, they are for this moment in time, but... It's all going to turn back on them. (laughs) Maybe you're thinking of some people that have done you wrong. If they at some point don't put their trust in God, it's all going to turn back on them. And then he says here, what what sorrow awaits you that are prideful and evil? Five times in this chapter. He's talking about evil people, and there's this repetitive phrase that comes back. Here's reality, what sorrow awaits you. Everyone that's proud, he's saying, however, however good it feels in the moment, however much you're prospering in the moment, <laughs> got to tell you, but there's a time coming, like what sorrow awaits you, what sorrow awaits you. And then embedded in this flow of verses that run all the way down to the end of, of chapter 20, embedded in this, there's some very profound end times message that God gives. And, and part of it is in verse 14. He's talking about the, you know, what sorrow awaits, what sorrow awaits, what sorrow awaits. And then he says, but as the waters fill the sea, the earth will be filled with an awareness of the glory of the Lord. He's talking about the end time. The day will come that all of humankind will be at standstill. And every eye will be fixed on the full glory of God. And, and they'll see the fullness of God's power and his righteousness, and his grace, and his wrath, and his goodness, and everything that's God. The the day is coming that every single person will be staggered by the presence of the full glory of God. And, And then he follows that with verse 15 by saying, what sorrow awaits you who make your neighbors drunk, you force your cup on them so you can gloat over their shameful nakedness, the imagery is not necessarily about alcohol and nakedness so much, although that was literally true in some cases, but it was more about what you impose on other people. The evil that you impose on others, that you make them drink, that you force into them, and the damage that's done, the way you diminish them, the way you destroy them, all of that, you force them to drink this cup of evil imposition upon them. Verse 16, but... Soon it will be your turn to be disgraced. Come, drink, and be exposed. Drink from the cup of the Lord's judgment. Everyone who's proudful and trusting upon themselves, he says, the day is going to come at the end time in all. There's this cup of judgment that every single 
prideful person will drink from. And, and every, everything that one has ever done to cause damage and destruction against God and others and everything, it, they, will, they will drink the full results of that. There's this cup of judgment. In fact, I, I should tell you the literal Hebrew there says the, the cup of the right hand of God. The clear implication in the context as well as other scriptures, the clear implication this cup of the right hand of God is, as it's worded here, is this cup of judgment. In the end, there's going to be this perfect judgment that occurs. And you have to know that, that this idea of this cup of judgment that, that one's going to have to drink down isn't just Old Testament stuff. It's deeply New Testament as well. I give you only a couple of brief but important examples. Jesus in Matthew 25, the whole chapter is him telling some parables. He tells three parables. And he's telling this right before the cross and resurrection time. And he tells a parable about some bridesmaids about a wedding. And part of it is some of the bridesmaids, they, they, they make the wrong choice and they, they're going to pay a high price. There's this judgment in essence of them. He tells about three servants and two of the three do really well. One of them makes the wrong choice and he says there's going to be this horrific punishment for that servant. And then he talks about sheep and goats and he was smart. He didn't talk about dogs and cats and one of them going to hell because I've learned if you talk about dogs and cats that way, uh, half the crowd's mad at you and everything. But Jesus was smart. He, he didn't talk about dogs and cats, sheep and goats. And, and the end of his story is for, for one of them, the one that doesn't trust in God and, and then live that out, the, the judgment will be horrifically beyond words. It's, it's not just Old Testament that speaks about this horrific cup of God's judgment. It's it's New Testament. It's biblical perspective as well. And then it gets down to the very end then, the very last verse, at verse 20. Again, there's more um, what sorrow awaits you, what sorrow awaits you. But then it says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. It's, it's end times vision he's painting. It's Revelation chapter 20. If you read Revelation 20, verse 11 and verses following, this is the picture being painted. The Lord sits in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. This is, this is a picture of judgment day. But, but the good news is this for Habakkuk. He's already been told way back in verse 4, Habakkuk, you're going to live. It's going to be a great day. It's going to end so well for you. When this day comes, you're going to live. Why? Because you've put your trust in me. You've given me leadership of your life. It's going to be a great day for you. And for, for Habakkuk, all is well that ends well. It's the message to him. But, but again, and this is important to grasp out of this passage here, this one chapter here, why does it end well for Habakkuk? How does he avoid drinking this cup of the judgment of God? Is it because he's good? Jeremiah, I've mentioned the last couple of weeks was this uh, peer of Habakkuk's. He was writing prophecy at the very same time. And Jeremiah would write in chapter 14, verse 20 of his book of prophecy. He would say, we all have sinned against you, Lord. Uh, everyone has sinned. And Paul would pick up on that in Romans 3, 23 and say the same thing. Every single person sinned. Habakkuk, no exception. He's not, all will not be well for him. He won't live because he was perfect. In fact, in his book, 
chapter 2, verse 4, it doesn't say that the righteous will live because of their sinless perfection, does it? They'll live by their faithfulness toward God. That's how they will live. And so he spared this, this cup of judgment like solely because he's placed his faith in God. And th- the next chapter that unfolds, and we'll get there next week, you begin to see how he responds to that. And part of the response, and I won't give away the, the main pieces, but, but you can tell he's grateful. You can tell there's this gratitude that he has. Even though he's still in trying times, he understands it's going to end well for him. And it results in some profound responses of his life out of that. He's grateful, but, but there are two things Habakkuk could not fully understand. There are two things he could not fully understand. The first is this, is how much he needed that grace. And this is true of me as well. I've grown in understanding the last few decades increasingly, but I still don't get how deeply I need grace, and you don't either. Jeremiah, the peer of Habakkuk, would write in chapter 6, verse 15, he would say, and he's, he's writing about the Jewish leaders, the same ones Habakkuk had written about that were so evil, almost beyond words, evil. He's writing about them, and, and he says, are, are they ashamed of their disgusting actions? Not at all. They don't even know how to blush. And I read that, and part of my heart breaks because I've been there. It seems that in the midst of sin, I can justify almost anything. I can look back time and again in the midst of sin. I, I don't see any reason to blush. I can fool myself, and you're the same way. Habakkuk was the same way. He, he got it. He knew he was a sinner. He knew he needed grace of God. He knew that. He didn't know how much. I don't begin to know how much. You don't either. We don't begin to know how much we need it. Jeremiah would then write in chapter 17, verse 9 of his prophecy. He would say, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? How true it is. Someday we'll, those of us that trust Jesus will see him face to face and, and we'll get it then. Now, only partly so. Habakkuk didn't know how much he needed that grace. And Habakkuk didn't know how much it cost to provide grace. He didn't know what the price would be to provide that grace. But you and I have an advantage over Habakkuk. We have a better understanding of what it costs to provide that grace. You, you take from the time he was writing this, and you fast forward just a little over 600 years, and you and I would realize that there was a Thursday night, and Jesus had his closest friends and followers around him on that Thursday night. And he's sitting with them, and there's this loaf of bread with him, and he would take this loaf And he would lift it toward the Father and give thanks to the Father in heaven. And he would break this loaf. And he would say, this is my body, which will be broken for you. And then very mindful of the cup of judgment, he would take a different cup. He would take this cup. And he would give thanks to the Father for this cup. And he would say to his followers, this cup is a cup filled with my blood. It's a cup that creates the new covenant that provides forgiveness for sins. Take and drink this. And he was saying to them, what is about to happen, my blood being shed, is what will provide the means for a cup of grace. In fact, it was what would provide the means for even the cup of grace that that Habakkuk could have. He didn't have a visual cup like this. He didn't have this representation. He had no idea where it came from or what the cost was. 
That Thursday night, Jesus was saying, this, this is the cost for creating a cup of grace. And then if we look in Matthew, a little bit further, Matthew 26, verses 38 and 39. Uh, a short time has passed. They have left the upper room where he had this very first communion with a cup of grace with them. And they've stepped into a garden Verse 38, it says, He told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, saying, My father, if it is possible to let this cup, this cup of suffering be taken away from me, let it be so. Yet I want your will and not mine to be done. He was saying to God, the Father, I understand in what's ahead tomorrow, I'm going to drink this full cup of judgment completely for humankind. So you flip a page to Matthew 27, and you look at verse 46, and it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon on the cross. Jesus has been there for six hours. And he cries out, Eli, Eli, Sabachthani. And he's saying, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? In that historical moment, he took the cup of judgment for all of humankind. Yours too, mine too. And he drank every single drop of it. Every single drop he consumed. which created the cup of grace to give all those who would trust him the chance to be fully forgiven. For all those who trust him when the final time comes to say, you live, you live, you live. There are two cups. There's a cup of judgment and there is a cup of grace and each of us will drink of one cup or the other. Everyone will drink of one cup or the other. And the deciding factor is simply this, is, is will I choose pride? Will I trust myself above all others? Will I trust myself above God? Will I choose to make the final decisions about how my life goes day by day? Or will I trust God? Will I say to him, here's my life, you lead it. Here's my desire, lead my life. Lead my life. The cup of judgment is simply what we deserve And Habakkuk rightly writes about how badly that ends. Jesus is more explicit about how badly that ends. But but the cup of grace, the cup of grace is this cup that says that that it ends well. It ends well. Whatever trial you are going through now, whatever trial you may go through in days to come, if you drink of the cup of grace, you can hold on to this sense that all's well that ends well. God may not show you exactly how this current trial is going to unfold. And when he does show you, it may, may not be what you most wanted to have happen. There may be an illness and you're appropriately saying, God, please heal me. And God may or may not. He may have a different plan, but he'll prove himself good. There may be great financial woes and you're saying, God, please answer the financial woes that I have. And he may or may not answer them the way you ask, but he'll prove himself good and you know, in the end times, you know, you know all is well that ends well. You know that. 
two months ago, a friend of mine had been to see his father out of state. His father's elderly, and his father had gotten quite ill and seemed somewhat serious. And this uh, friend of mine is very, very close to his father. And so this friend was praying for his father's recovery, and I joined with him and prayed for his father's recovery. It is very, very trying time. Again, there's a close bond, and this friend of mine was already going through trying times, and now the illness is adding to the trying times, and so there's this prayer for for, for healing for the father two months ago, and the prayers continued until last Monday, because last Monday the father died. So I'm standing with my friend, and he's describing to me about how close he was and the grief he's feeling. But, But through the tears, he says, but... My father had trusted in Jesus. And I know that all the, all the pain's gone, all the suffering's gone, all the illness is gone. I know where he is. I know he's in heaven now. And he says, and you know I've trusted Jesus. I'm gonna see him again one day. And he said, it, it doesn't take away the grief and everything, but there's something above the grief because his father had drank from the cup of grace and this man drinks from the cup of grace. Indeed, all is well that ends well. Trying times, we've learned some things. Lift up honest, unfiltered, unceasing prayer. Hold one and only one expectation. God will prove himself to be good. Whatever path he he takes, whatever he does, he'll prove himself to be good. And then this from chapter 2 is drink from the cup of grace and all ends well. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. You drink from the cup of grace, all ends well. Don't, don't opt for the cup of judgment. This is, a, of course, Jesus' intent was. This is a, a representation of, of what's true of our heart. And as a church, we're about to offer communion, so I would offer it to, to any who have trusted their life to Jesus and said, lead me. And if you have not, but you choose to now in these few moments here, then I would invite you as well to come when you come, I'd like to encourage you to take a glance at this cup that you have decided will not be your cup. You've decided you won't drink of this cup here. This is not yours. This is not your faith. This is not the future for you. And when someone then breaks off a piece of bread, then dip it in the cup of grace. And remember the, the cost of creating that cup of grace for you. And think of what's true for you. It ends well. It ends well. If you're in a trying time now, hold on to that truth. It ends well. It ends very, very well. I wish, I wish we had a thousand of these so you could drink every drop down to experience that. But as I thought about it, it probably wouldn't be a good illustration to do that because you can never reach the end of God's grace. It's infinite. You can never empty the cup fully. And so, again, when you come, you'll just get a piece of bread broken off for you and, and dip it in the cup then. Just to give you some help on this, the way we do this here, there'll be servers all across the front. And if wherever you are on the floor, if you would come this direction with whatever aisle you're on, a row you're on, and then come down the aisles, uh, there'll be servers across the front. Find an empty one going in this direction, and then go back to your seats in this direction here. If you're in the risers, as many of you are, there'll be servers in the front for you to come to. This is a change for us. There's only one gluten-free station It'll be on this side, on this far side here, if you need gluten-free. So let me pray for us. And uh, as this begins to unfold, you'll begin to hear a song we were doing for the first time called, titled, What a Beautiful Name. 
If you want to join in at any point, feel free to. But listen to the lyrics of it. I'll read you only one verse. Verse 2 says this. It says about Jesus, you didn't want heaven without us. He was great in heaven. He had everything he needed. But he loves us so much. He didn't want to have the perfection of heaven without us getting to enjoy that too. You didn't want heaven without us. So Jesus, you brought heaven down. You brought heaven down. My sin was great. Your love was greater. What could separate us now? What a beautiful name, the name of Jesus Christ, my King. Father in heaven, may all in this room opt for the cup of grace. May all of us in this room, may we choose to trust in you and your son Jesus with our lives. Give you the final word, the final say in all that comes, in all that comes. May all of us be able to, to know to know the truth of drinking the cup of grace is that it ends well. It ends very well. Therefore, all is well because it ends well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.